Well, if you've been along for this journey, you know that the crisis that precipitated the book of Exodus began in light of the Hebrews, the people of God, being faithful to fulfill the creation mandate. They were fruitful and they multiplied. God had positioned them down in Egypt where they could be in an incubator of sorts, where they could grow and God could increase their numbers as he had promised the fathers without fear of being absorbed into the ethnic community of the Canaanites because the Egyptians looked down on them as a different people group. So they were left alone. But as they grew, as they were faithful to the creation mandate, they were perceived to be a threat. And so the Pharaoh of the time decided to deal shrewdly with them. And he enslaved them. And he tried to subtly and quietly institute a policy of genocide where he would essentially perform late-term abortions on the boys. And when that proved ineffective, his whole people rallied around him to cast the newborn boys of the Israelites into the river. And so God rose up to defend his people. His people had been subjected to the tyranny of a false master. And God said, no more. It's you and me, Pharaoh. You who dub yourself Lord of Egypt, master of the people, raw in the flesh. You and your pantheon of gods. It's you and me. And so the ensuing battle has been a very theological one. Yes, it has had practical ramifications, but the underlying thrust is the question, who is the Lord? Is it Pharaoh and the gods of the land that he represents? Is it the gods of the culture of Egypt that provide meaning and security and comfort and chaos from from the chaos? Or is it the Lord alone who is able to speak and give meaning to our confusion and calm our fears and steady our hand in the midst of all of the troubles and trials out there? To whom belongs our allegiance? And so the Lord has sought to bring his people out of Egypt, but then the bigger problem, as we have seen, has been getting Egypt out of the people. Because for over 400 years, this has been their homeland. 400 years. We've only been a nation for like 250. Okay? Many of you, your relatives probably came over in the great migrations of the 1800s. But you don't associate yourself with England or France or or wherever it is. You associate yourself with America. And that's only after a hundred and some years. Imagine if your people had been in a place for 400 years. That's home. But it was not home. It was simply the land of their sojournings. And God is getting his people out. So this book is God's revelation of himself to his people. This book, the Declaration of Independence of the People of God, is where God reveals himself and teaches us all about himself, teaches us about ourselves even, and how we can relate to this holy God who was a man of war. This book is so full of theology, so full of right doctrine that in a very real sense, it's, it's like looking at the Rocky Mountains. 
just full of peaks, just full of high points. Where are the low points? I mean, it's just amazing. Did you know that in the United States, there are 96 14ers? There are 96 mountains in the United States who have a peak over 14,000 feet. 58 of those 96 are in Colorado alone, okay? So imagine you're looking at the Rocky Mountain Range, and you see just mountain after glorious mountain, but yet there are a few particular high points that stand up even, among, even amongst a, a, a scenery of awesomeness. There are a few particularly powerful pictures. These particularly high peaks have their correspondence in the book of Exodus. Exodus is awesome. But there are a few really high points that have shaped the people of God even to this day. One of those high peaks is this passage right here. The crossing of the people through the Red Sea is a high point in the book of Exodus. It's mentioned repeatedly in the Psalms. In fact, as we will see in a few minutes, the song of Moses here in in, uh, Exodus 15 is sung by the saints in heaven in Revelation. It's an influential passage. In this passage, the Exodus event, the getting of the people out of Egypt, reaches its climax. Last week, we learned that when the people left, there was a very short, direct route to the promised land. They could have taken the Via Maris, the way of the sea, and gone right up the coast. And in just a couple weeks' time, they could have been in the land of milk and honey. But as we saw last week, God's rationale for not taking them that direct way was they were not ready. And as we learn in this passage, another reason why God didn't take them that way is he wasn't finished with Egypt. The battle had not been decisively won. And so we see these two themes together, which we see throughout all of Scripture, And it undergirds all good theology that the actions of God are primarily oriented towards the ultimate goal of His glory. But in regards to His people, everything He does is for the good of His people. So it looks like God has them wandering in the desert. God engages an actual deceptive military strategy here. Have you noticed that before? In verses 1 and 2, he specifically tells them a route to take that is designed to make Pharaoh think that they are literally wandering lost in the desert. God is deceiving them. He is luring them into a trap. He is not done. God does everything for the purpose of glorifying his name, even when it comes to the judgment of his enemies. That is a profound thing. The Lord tells them to double back and encamp facing the sea. That seems like a strategic blunder. That is suicide. Perhaps some of you have gone to college or read on some sort of liberal magazine or maybe just watching PBS. And surely in your own Bible, you have a footnote right next to Red Sea or something, and it says literally or something, Sea of Reeds. Have you ever heard about that? The Sea of Reeds? 
And so the idea here is that uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the, whenever it talks about what we know as the Red Sea, it uses the Hebrew expression Yam Suf. Yam Suf. Yam means sea. Suf means reeds or, or, or rushes or papyrus, that kind of thing. And so that's the name of it, Yam Suf. Now, in the late 1900s, in the, with the advent of higher criticism and liberal ideology, where, and by liberal, I don't mean political liberalism, I mean the idea that God doesn't do miracles. Religion is a sociological phenomenon uh, conjured up to explain happenings otherwise unexplainable. And so higher critics said that what happened here is there was this, by the name Yom Suf, that what must have been is there was a, a marshy region at the far north of the Red Sea. It's probably tidal, like a tidal marsh. And so what happened is, is the tide went out and the people made their way across the dry land. That really would have been mud. And of course, Pharaoh and his army comes in after them and they get stuck in the mud and the tide comes in and covers them. And I'm sure you've heard the, the, the preacher stories where that kind of thing is said from the pulpit and the man hollers out, you know, so if God drowned an entire army in 18 inches of water, that's an even bigger miracle. But I, I don't want you to fret, okay? For some of you, you're going to go to college and you're going to hear this. Um, don't fret about names. Why is it named Yom Suf, Sea of Reeds? Um, why is it called the Mississippi River? It starts in Minnesota. It ends in Louisiana. It borders the border of Missouri that it runs down is longer than the border of Mississippi. So why on earth do we call it the whole length, the Mississippi River? I don't know. People name things weird names. Okay? So I'm guessing it is true that the Red Sea at one point, the waters were further inland. There may have been a marshy region that was more associated with the people of Egypt. But here is the historical fact that, that you can take to the bank. All of antiquity, not just the Bible, all of antiquity, when it references Yom Suf, it's referencing the body of water that we know as the Red Sea. Or its arms, probably like the Gulf of Suez, if you, if you see how the, the Red Sea works. Okay? But historically, that's what it is. So it's just in a modern liberal invention to call it something other than that. But that goes to show the veracity of God's word. People want to undermine it and claim that it was a tide. But what does the text specifically say? There was a wall of water on either side, not just a tidal drainage. And it says that the Lord sent a wind to drive the waters apart. I mean, this is miraculous, guys. I cannot fathom the the intensity of a blast of air that it would take to separate, let's assume it was the Gulf of Suez part. That's a 20-mile stretch with an average depth of 200 feet. I can't imagine the blast of air it would take to separate waters and sustain them and still allow people to pass through. This is a miracle. But I am imagining, have you been to Horseshoe Falls at Niagara Falls? It's an, it's an amazing sight. As tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons spill over these falls every second. 
And imagine this wall of water to your left and a wall of water to your right. And you're passing through and you are looking. Wow. This passage shows the glory and power of God to save and to judge. God had been demonstrating his power to the people of Israel. And even here, in verse 11 and 12, they didn't get it. They had just seen plague after plague befall their former Egyptian masters, and they still turn on Moses the minute that something goes wrong. Didn't we say to leave us alone? This here, this, this really should challenge our notion of how salvation works. We tend to think that salvation is primarily just a free offer that's extended and held out there and that people primarily just come and choose Jesus. All along, what we see here is a people who, quite frankly, they were crying out. They didn't like getting whipped, but they were happy in Egypt. They didn't want to leave Egypt. But God isn't going to let them just choose what they want to do. God brings them along. God so desires the good of his people that he is not going to let them stay where they are comfortable because where they are comfortable will lead them to hell. And so he literally takes them kicking and screaming out of Egypt. Remember, there are some people for whom the gospel of grace comes. And when God wants to grip someone's heart and transform it and save them, it's a powerful, and, and, and people struggle, and it's struggling, it's difficult. But God makes them, makes them ready and willing to follow. That's not how it always is at the start. It's a challenge. And we see the effects of sin on what it does to a person in the people of Israel. They don't really believe. In fact, at the end of the chapter, when it says they feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and Moses, that's just a powerful description of their emotional response because what do we see them doing the very next chapter? We're going to see next week, they're immediately grumbling again, doubting again. They are leaving Egypt in verse 8. It says defiantly, triumphantly. The Hebrew word uh, actually conveys the notion of arrogant pride. In other words, they were leaving pretty haughtily. <laughs> and I'm willing to wager that a means by which the people of Egypt were hardened, because it does not just say Pharaoh was hardened. The people, his servants, were hardened too. I'm going to wager that it was the manner of their departure, the haughtiness, that defiant nature of their departure, the laughing at the Egyptians that the Lord used to turn the attitude of the Egyptians. And they're so confident. <laughs> yeah. Then what happens? As soon as, trouble, as soon as they see an army bearing down on them, what do they do? Like my dog when I yell too loud, tail between the legs, peeing herself. And that's what they're doing. Unbelief causes us to forget. Unbelief causes us to think that everything God has done was, was, was either an exception 
or, or something that can't be counted on. We might not even really remember that it happened. And when you forget what God has done, you forget where God is going. And when you forget those promises, and you think that your life is being governed and led by just random decision-making, then when a crisis comes, like an army coming over the hill, you assume the worst. How in your life do you respond when the trials and the crisis moments come? Do you immediately start, isn't this what I said? Oh, oh. Or do you say, God has guided me every step of the way to this point, and he has promised me a future. He will fight for me. What is your response? Moses' response is awesome. Okay, look carefully. Uh, in, when he tells the people of Israel in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, you only have to be silent that word for silent really is still. Stop. Just stop. The Lord has told him he would get glory over Pharaoh. But he has not told him yet what he's going to do. He doesn't tell Moses what he's going to do until down here in verse uh, 18. Or 17 and 18. What that means is that Moses is at the point in his faith where God's word that he's going to gain glory over the enemies of God is enough. Now, has God not given us a similar promise that he will provide for our needs and he will complete the work he began and that Christ is ruling even now over all the powers of the world over Facebook and Google and all these schools that seem to want to repress free speech and take away our ability to have a Christian witness in the public, and we think our world's going upside down, Christ is ruling even now. And all things must be subservient to our salvation. And so Moses' guidance to the people, be still. The tone in Hebrew is a rebuke. It's not a, it's not a plead. It's, it's, a, it's a stand still, watch what God's going to do. He's calling for maturity. A hallmark of someone who is well-versed and well-seasoned in any dangerous endeavor is the ability to not get ruffled when things start bouncing. Kind of like, you know, I, I use it regularly because it's so terrifying for me. It's my nightmare. Uh, flying on a plane... When a little bit of turbulence happens, I'm like, no, 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 no. oh, man. But aviators, those flight attendants that are, you know, in the air hours and hours each day, doesn't even phase them. When I was bobbing out in the Gulf of Alaska fishing and, and we, at the low of the waves, the, the waves are higher than the boat, and I was, you know, oh, my goodness, the, the, the crew of the boat, they had their sea legs, didn't even phase them. You know, when I got to Afghanistan and, and incoming mortars met us, you know, I, I was a new guy, you know, ah! And, run, and, and those seasoned infantry guys didn't even stop smoking their cigarettes. And now Moses is telling them, there's an army bearing down on them, be chill. 
and watch. God will do something. Being still in the midst of trouble and trial is maturity, is an evidence of maturity. It takes discipline to stand still when you are threatened. It takes still, it takes, it takes confidence in the Lord, it takes maturity, it takes faith to trust God. That in that moment of danger where this army is bearing down, that whatever God's purpose is, he's going to do it. And I don't need to fret. How do you handle the troubles and trials of life? Do you melt like the Israelites? Or do you respond with the confidence based upon all that God has done and all that God has promised that you know he's going to be there in the moment with you? Of course, you see the recalcitrance, the hardness of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. This is crazy. And this is a picture of what sin ultimately does to a person. The It drives a person crazy. Have you ever encountered a person who is so, they may not be clinically insane, but but they're so committed to this self-destructive course that they may as well be crazy. That that even now the consequences of their actions are are just bearing all around them. Their world is falling apart and they just will not let it go. You ever encountered someone like that? Here's Pharaoh. His country has been literally deconstructed by the Lord. The firstborn of his nation are dead. And he thinks he's going to go up against these people who just a minute before their God had demonstrated power over every single one of their lives and every facet of their being. Madness. And what kind of madness would drive a person to actually enter that water channel would you you know i've seen uh, those those crazy rope bridges in in like tibet or india or whatever you know and if you're chasing somebody and they're ahead of you don't go out on that bridge as soon as they get across they're just going to cut it okay that doesn't take a, a a high level brain to think about but they're so obsessed They're so vengeful. They're so wrathful. They rage. And they become mad with their self-destructive folly. And you may be tempted to think, oh, that's just Pharaoh. That's just a unique posture because the Lord hardened his heart. That's the posture of the world in Psalm 2. The nations rage. All Pharaoh is here is a picture of what that raging looks like. It's madness. And you may be tempted to think, well, that's Pharaoh, that's the world, but it can't be one of us. Hebrews 3 begs to differ. We must encourage each other, it says, every day, as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of us an an evil, unbelieving heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why I've been really thumping the family thing this morning. The way that God keeps us from having this hard, recalcitrant, crazy, ridiculous, hard heart 
that persists in walking in unbelief despite everything that goes around us is the mutual edification and encouragement of the people of God. We need each other. Every man, woman, boy, and girl. This is how we hold on to the cross with the encouragement and by the encouragement of each other. Not just the preacher man up here telling you things. That's important. Preaching is important. But the fellowship of the saints, the encouragement we get from each other, that's how we are prodded to hold on. That's the thing God uses to keep our heart from becoming, our heart from becoming hard. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like the people of Israel who just persist in unbelief even after they see demonstration after demonstration of God's goodness and power to them. And once they are saved, they break forth in song. Have you ever noticed that Exodus 14 and Exodus 15 tell the same story? Exodus 14 is prose. Exodus 15 is poetry. It's a song that, in poetic language, replays what just happened. Song praise is the natural outpouring of gratitude that comes from people who recognize they have been redeemed. Christians are singing people. The people of God sing. Song is so important. It's where head and heart connect to wrap around the truths we affirm about God. Song impacts a person at an emotional level where the spoken word can't. This song is all about the utter uniqueness of God. And how he uses his power to vindicate and fight for his people. He is a man of war, it says. And he thrusts his adversaries into the sea. This has been a source of encouragement and hope for oppressed believers throughout all eras. Knowing that every tear you shed, every drop of blood that is spilled... God stores up, and the day is coming when there will be a reckoning. In due time, their foot will fall. Now is the day of grace, but the day is coming for all mankind when God will demand a reckoning, and he will vindicate his people. This is why in Revelation, in Revelation 15, the people of heaven are singing two songs. They're singing the song of Moses here, which celebrates God's victory over their enemies to bring freedom. And they're singing the song of the Lamb, which celebrates the victory of the Son of God over all the powers of hell. God defeats the enemies of his people, that his people can live in unfettered relationship with him. Because that was the reason we were created. And so celebrating God's great redemption in our life is the natural outpouring of having been saved. Do you find your heart hard to praise? Is it difficult to conjure up the mojo to praise God for what he's done? It could be that you haven't really appreciated the magnitude of your unworthiness to have received forgiveness in the first place. God's, the amazing thing about God is not that he judges, 
the amazing thing about God is that in light of our sinfulness and in light of our continual propensity to rebel as demonstrated by the people of Israel, that he shows us mercy. That's the amazing thing. My heart is so prone to wandering. And I know yours is too. And yet, because of grace and because of his tenacious love for us, he will not let us go. He will not leave us alone. He will pull us along and get us to right where he wants us to be, which is made perfect and fit to delight in his presence forever. So today, tomorrow, this week, you're going to face difficulties. Someone's going to be mean to you. Someone's not going to treat you the way you should be treated. Things aren't going to go your way. In that moment, are you going to have a hissy fit? Are you going to act as if God has abandoned you? That he's left you out in the desert to die because there were not enough graves in Egypt? Or are you going to remember what everything God has done and everything that God has promised and remember that whatever it is I'm going through, it may not make sense to me, but it is for God's glory and it is for my good. Let's pray.